Good evening. Thank you for joining us for this Good Friday service. As we begin, I want you to imagine 2,000 years ago, hours before Jesus was crucified, the Apostle Paul denied even knowing him. I invite you to put yourself into Peter's shoes. Jesus had been your best friend. You'd given up everything, including your job, to follow him. You had endured the ridicule of being associated with him. And he had taught you so much and had given your life a resounding purpose. Then he predicted your denial, but you thought that you were stronger than that. Even if everyone fell away, you were sure that you would be faithful. You would never abandon Jesus. And then you did. Not once, not twice, but three times. The first denial was completely impulsive as you were caught up in the moment. But after you denied him once, you couldn't stop. You faltered under pressure again and again. It went just as Jesus predicted, and now he is dead. You were sure that he was the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. You were convinced of it, but now he's dead. And a dead Messiah is really no Messiah at all. So on top of feeling like a failure, you are perplexed. Because who really was Jesus? He wasn't supposed to die. Now tonight, against this backdrop of Peter's denial, we are going to start by focusing on God. Because in order to get an accurate view of what Peter was experiencing, in order to get an accurate view of what's going on in our lives, or really of anything else, We don't start from the human point of view. Instead, we start with God. Because seeing him clearly puts everything else into proper perspective. So I invite you now to stand as I open our service in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you love us so deeply and so richly that you sent your one and only Son into this world. And we know that you came on a mission, a mission to redeem us a mission to reconcile us with yourself, but we know that there is a tremendous cost associated with that. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, even when we have been faithless. And we pray that in this time that we have together, that you will, that you will convict us with a greater degree of the gravity of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, of a, uh, that you will inspire us with his love, but also that you will move us to that point of wanting to follow him more and more faithfully. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
there lived a frog who resided by the river. He was well respected by the other animals because he was known for going out of his way to help the other creatures in whatever they needed. His reputation spread far and wide as being a very helpful frog, and it reached the ears of a scorpion. The scorpion wanted to get across the river, so he chose to seek out the frog and ask for its help. When he finally found the frog, the scorpion explained his request of having the frog carry him on his back over the river. The frog was hesitant at first. How do I know that you won't sting me while I'm carrying you across? The scorpion replied, I cannot swim. If I sting you, we will both drown. Besides, it is in your nature to help me. Seeing the sound logic of the scorpion, the frog agreed to help him across the river. About halfway across, the frog felt a sharp pain in his back. As his legs began to tense up and become immovable, he asked the scorpion, Now we both are doomed. Why did you sting me? To which he heard the reply, I am a scorpion. It is in my nature to sting others. Just like the scorpion's nature is to sting. Since the fall, we humans have a sinful nature to contend with. We try to override this with our willpower, but we can never completely escape it. In contrast, God's nature is holiness. And by definition, holiness means that he is set apart from sin. He has never had a thought, said a word, or done anything that is immoral or is a transgression against his divine law. The Apostle John uses the analogy of light to explain God's holiness to us. He says in 1 John 1, verse 5b, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. This is God's nature. But the nature of the world is vastly different because of our sin. The next few verses in 1 John contrast God, who is light and holy, with those who walk in darkness because of their sin. This refers to humanity, who has been separated from God because of our sin. Just like the scorpion in the story, our nature is to rebel against God and act deceitfully and bring harm. We run away from the light, choosing darkness instead. But God is not only holy in his nature, he is also loving. Seeing his most precious creation lost in darkness was not something he was willing to leave alone. The Apostle John explains this in the third chapter of his gospel, what God's solution is, starting in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. From this passage, we see that Jesus, the light of the world, stepped down into darkness, motivated by his love for us. But the darkness did not accept him. Like the scorpion from that story, 
humanity acted according to its sinful nature, rejected and chose to kill the Son of Man. Jesus is the light of the world, but as Jesus neared his death, it was like the light of his life being extinguished. Over the course of this service, we will be extinguishing candles as a way of representing that Jesus, the light of the world, was nearing his death. Please stand and sing with us. Thank you. 
They say a rooster crowing is God's wake-up call. Yeah, that's, uh, at least that's the way it was for me. Everything, that, that whole night was a blur, all right? Um, I didn't comprehend, none of us could comprehend everything that was going on, all right? We were all in the upper room, Jesus was washing our feet. Um, then we were in the garden, Jesus goes off to pray by himself. I fell asleep, I'm not proud of it, I had a big meal, bread makes me sleepy. Next thing we know, me, James, and John, Jesus is in our face, and he's trying to wake us up, and uh, he said, um, he said uh, the, the, uh, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing, and, and then before we know it, Judas is kissing Jesus on the cheek, I try to go help him, I cut off this guard's ear, for the record, I wasn't aiming for his ear, I'm a fisherman, not a swordsman. Then they, uh, they arrest Jesus, and they take him off, and we... We ran. And it wasn't but two hours earlier that we were in the upper room. I was looking at him. I was looking him right in the eye saying, if everyone disowns you, Jesus, I won't. I'm with you. I love you. And I think that's what made me stop, turn around, go back. And uh, I caught a glimpse of Jesus as they were taking him to the high priest's house. Stood at the gate, and some girl comes up to me, starts pointing at me, starts going, You, you're with him. You're with this man that claims to be the Son of God. You're one of his disciples. I felt like every eye was on me. So I just brushed her off. I said, You don't know what you're talking about. You got the wrong guy. I get my way into the courtyard, and uh, it's cold. I, I try to warm up by the fire. And then there's this guy that recognizes me, and he is uh, from the ear incident, you know, and starts going, get him, get him, he's with him. Just arrest him, get him. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about, all right? I wasn't with him. It was easier the second time to deny him. sometime right before morning and um, this wise guy he comes up to me and goes, who are you kidding, alright, who are you fooling you're with him, I can tell by your accent I'm like, this is just the way I talk, alright and, and the whole night they kept pushing him around, they kept beating him, they kept spitting on him, throwing insults at him and I couldn't take it anymore, I had enough, I was tired of people accusing me, looking at me and I, and I just I said a few things that I'm not proud of but I was like, leave him alone, you don't know what you're doing, alright just leave him alone, I wasn't with him And that's when I heard the most blood-curdling sound I ever heard in my whole life. I heard that rooster crow. And at that moment, Jesus, he turns around and he looks at me. He looks at me. And his gaze, you can't escape his gaze. I mean, when his eyes are on you, you cannot escape it. And they arrested him and they took him off. I will die with you, Jesus. As everyone, if everybody disowns you, I will die with you. What a, what a joke. I mean, what would you do? 
At that moment, at that time, I ran. I ran so fast, I ran so long. And you know what they did? They killed him. He's dead. When we come face to face with our sin, as Peter did, it is painful. We feel so vulnerable, so, so ashamed, so regretful, wishing that things could be different, but, but once you do something like that, you can't change it. And so what is our typical reaction when we come face to face with our sin? Well, our typical reaction, like Peter describes, is to run and to hide. Adam and Eve started it. It's not just finger-pointing, because we're all guilty of that. But Adam and Eve essentially started it back in the Garden of Eden. They rebelled against God. They sinned. God came looking for them, and they hid. They literally tried to hide from God. It's a futile attempt, but they tried. And on down through human history, every generation since then has been repeating that same pattern. Turn against God. Rebel. Feel ashamed. Feel vulnerable. Run and hide. And we see it in children. I think of how just about a month ago, one of my children did something that was wrong. I was trying to figure out where they go, and they were hiding behind the chair in our family room. They were ashamed. They were trying to hide. Adults, we may become a little bit more sophisticated in how we do this, but we still do the same type of thing. We like to put on masks to try to make ourselves look good to the outside world when the inside We're riddled with insecurity, vulnerability, pain. We may try to project confidence when inside we're trembling and scared. Or we may try to deny um, our wrongdoing. Or when we're in conversations with people, we just, you know, try to avoid the subject. Or we try to downplay the situation. Or sometimes if if we just feel too vulnerable, too ashamed, when we're in, in a relationship or in conversations with people, We just run. We just leave the situation. Because it's painful when we come face to face with our sin. As Peter experienced and as he said in that video, sin is personal. It's not just something generic that's out there saying, well, the world is sinful. No, no, it's personal in our lives as well. But most of the time, when we face our sin... What ends up happening is that we are not truly broken because we're trying to, to avoid the consequences of it. We're trying to avoid the shame. Far too often, though, we are like Peter, where we have lofty ambitions. We, we want to do what's right. We think we will, but in the end, we end up falling short, just like Peter did. And then, when we fall short, we feel that shame. And so we have these, these elaborate defense mechanisms to try to avoid the shame, and to try to avoid the regret. We deny any sort of wrongdoing. Or we engage in finger-pointing and blame-shifting, and we try to say, well, it's really their fault. Yeah, I shouldn't have done what I did, but, but really the blame lies with them. 
We have all these elaborate defense mechanisms. I mean, we even compartmentalize to try to ignore the situation or ignore the wrongdoing or ignore that weakness. We have these defense mechanisms. And the problem is when we put up these defense mechanisms and really we are not broken by our sin the way we should be before holy God, what ends up happening is it really damages that relationship with God and with others. Let me go back to the passage that Pastor David referred to earlier, 1 John chapter 1, picking up in verse 5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we see here very clearly that when we are walking in the darkness, meaning that we have sin in our lives, which we all do, but rather than confessing it to God, rather than being real about it, being authentic, instead we try to hide it, we try to bury it under the rug. What ends up happening is it damages our relationship with God and with those around us as well. Now you think about Peter. Three years of following Jesus. The vast majority of the teaching that we see coming from Jesus' mouth in the scriptures, Peter was there to experience it. He heard Jesus talking about how he, Jesus, is the light of the world. In those hours before Jesus was crucified, when Peter denied Jesus, he was denying the light. He was walking in darkness. He's walking in darkness, and that is what happens when we cherish sin in our heart, when we try to bury it, when we try to deny it, when we try to ignore it. In Peter's darkest hour, he denied the light. So the question is, when we find ourselves like Peter, walking in the darkness or having some form of sin in our lives, whether large, small, whether public or private, how do we respond? Well, 1 John chapter 1 provides a great answer for us. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So when we recognize some sin in our lives, it's important to confess it. Confessing sin simply means to agree with God that, yes, that was sin. That was wrongdoing. That fell short, God, of your standard. And it's important that when we become aware of sin in our lives, that we are quick to confess it to God and frequently to confess it to others, especially if we sinned against someone else or if we're walking with others in our, in our Christian lives, uh, just that we engage in accountability with them because confessing it is key to experiencing forgiveness and growth and purification through the, the process of, of sin. Also, it's so important that as we confess sin and are real about it and bring it out into the light, that we throw ourselves at, on Jesus. I mean, Jesus is merciful. He's the ultimate expression of, of God's love in this world. And he opens the way for us to have a right relationship with God. He opens the way for us to be able to release shame and brokenness and regret and guilt. Jesus offers full restoration, the holiness and justice of God that Pastor David spoke of. God's holiness and justice demand payment for sin. Someone has to pay the penalty for sin in order for God's justice to be satisfied and upheld. But God's love paved a way for him 
to reconcile us with God and pay that penalty himself through Jesus. That's why we celebrate Good Friday. That's why the darkest of days, when the Son of God was crucified, why we call it good. Because what Jesus accomplished on the cross paved the way for us to be restored, reconciled with God, made clean, made new, be able to leave shame, condemnation, judgment in the past. But for Jesus, it was incredibly costly. Crucifixion was a form of death that many scholars say was the most gruesome, most horrible form of execution ever devised by humanity. And back in that world, it was frequently called the slave's death because it was reserved for the scum of society and for slaves. Normal Roman citizens could not be crucified because it was too horrible of a death. There were other forms of execution if, they, if it was warranted, but forms of ex- execution that were more humane. Because when someone is crucified, they had the physical pain. The word excruciating literally means from the cross, out of the cross. It describes that pain physically that, that you experience when you're crucified. You not only are beaten before you're crucified, you have nails driven through your wrists and through your feet. And you hang on that cross typically for days before you die. It's, it's, it's a form of execution that's meant to prolong the suffering. On top of that, crucifixion was incredibly shameful. The crosses were typically erected near a busy intersection or near a busy road in the city so that as many people as possible could see those people up on the crosses and it would be incredibly shameful. Those who were crucified would be literally stripped naked. Now, we don't typically see that, do we, in movies or in in pictures or depictions of the crucifixion, and and justifiably so. We don't see that part of it. But that was a part of crucifixion because there's a part of the shame associated with this form of death. And that's what Jesus went through. On top of all that, he went through being separated from God as a payment for sin. He was separated from God. He went through shame. He was condemned so that we could be free, so that we would not have to face condemnation, a judgment, and ultimate shame. So this is why we call it Good Friday. This is why it is a celebration when we reflect on Jesus' death. But it is incredibly important that we take sin seriously. Because when we see the depth of our sin, it also illuminates the glory of of God's grace. I like the way Pastor Tim Keller has put it. Tim Keller said the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's this paradox of the gospel. We are incredibly broken and sinful and and wretched in many different ways, more so than we could ever believe. But before the Holy God, but at the same time, God loves us so richly and so magnificently and so gloriously more than we could ever imagine. This is the good news of the gospel. But it's important that we do take our sins seriously because if we do not, we're, end up, we're going to lie to ourselves, we're going to deceive ourselves, we're going to break that relationship with God and with those around us. And so as a way in this time together this evening to help us take seriously our sin against the Holy God, and to come to grips with the glory of the gospel. There are two different sheets of paper in your pews. I encourage you to take one of each of these. Uh, For most of you, they're going to be in the pew in front of you. Some of you, they're going to be on the chair that you're actually sitting in. 
There's one that's green. At the top it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which is true. comes from Romans 3.23. On it is a list of a variety of different types of sin. In a few minutes, we're going to have some time just for personal reflection, prayer, confessing sin to God. Ideally, when we recognize sin in our lives, we are quick to confess it. We keep short accounts with God. Yet at the same time, there are times where there is sin in our lives that we just don't recognize or we've just tried to ignore or push under the rug. But it's important that we bring it out into the light to experience restoration and repentance and growth through it. So, so over the next few minutes, as music plays quietly in the background, I want to encourage you just to prayerfully look through this list of various sins. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. And as you recognize sin in your life, to confess it to God. And as you do that, by faith to receive God's grace and God's forgiveness. Because you remember, we are promised that if anyone confesses their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And to aid our process of confessing our sin to God, there is this other sheet that's kind of in the form of a bookmark. This is just a prayer of confession, confessing our sin to God. You can use this time also to just read through that and pray through that. And then after a few minutes of personal reflection and prayer and confession time, I'm going to lead us in reciting this confession to God together. So let's take these minutes to confess our sin to God, to thank him for his grace, and to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus.
I would now like to invite us to join together. There's going to be this corporate confession up on the screen. I invite us just to join together in, in confessing our sins to God through reciting this. Our Father, we have sinned against you time and time again. We have been guilty of pride and unbelief. We have neglected to seek you in our daily life. Our sins and shortcomings present you with a list of accusations. But we thank you that they will not stand against us because they have all been laid on Christ. Your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, deeper than all our sin. Forgive our careless attitudes toward your purposes, our refusal to relieve the suffering of others, our envy of those who have more than us, our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure, our indifference to the treasures of heaven, our neglect of your wise and gracious law. Transform us from the inside out so that we may desire what is good, love what you love, and do what you command. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Listen to these words of assurance that come from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, John writes, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. That is the payment so that we do not have to pay the penalty for sin, but so that we can be acquitted, so that we can be fully forgiven and redeemed and restored. In a few moments, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together to remember what Christ has done on our behalf through his death. In preparation for that, I invite you to just listen along with the words of this song, celebrating the forgiveness that is ours through Jesus.
Six feet under, I could have been lost forever. Yeah, I should be in that fire, but now there's fire inside of me. Here I am, a dead man walking. No grave gonna hold God's people. All the weight of all our evil lifted away, forever free. Who could believe? Who could believe? Forgive. The night before Jesus was crucified, he ate his last supper with his disciples. And in it, he gave the disciples and everyone who's a follower of Christ ever since then the command to remember what he did on the cross on our behalf by celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. He took bread, broke it, gave thanks for it, and says, this is my body, which is for you. He took the cup, says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. By celebrating the Lord's Supper together, we remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We're going to have an opportunity tonight to do this. Now, we're going to do it in a way where you're going to be able to come forward in two different lines. The bread and the cup will be served on each side right here. You may drink, eat the bread, drink the cup while you're up here. There are trash cans on each side uh, in which to put the empty cups. Or you may take the bread and the cup back to your seat and partake as you are ready. Now, there's a significance. I know that it's more an individualistic way to do this, but we have to recognize that if anyone wants eternal life, if anyone wants forgiveness, it's not something that your parent can do for you or your spouse can do for you or your church can do for you or your pastor can do for you. It's a decision that each person has to make for themselves to confess their sins, to forsake 
their previous way of life and to throw themselves on Jesus by faith, saying, Jesus, I can't do this by myself. I need you to redeem me. I need you to restore me. Now, as you come up, I invite you to bring with you these green sheets that have sins listed on them. Because I know it's, it can be a convicting, kind of down, depressing type of activity to reflect on our sins. But we have to remember that if we are in Christ, we are new creations. Our sin does not characterize us and define us any longer. It's no longer going to be held against us. So as you come up to receive the Lord's Supper, I encourage you to bring this up with you if you're trusting in Christ and to drop it into this basket right here. And do that as you come up. You don't have to be a member of regular freedoms to join with us in the Lord's Supper. But the requirement that Jesus gave and Paul gave, the Apostle Paul, is that we be believers in Christ. Because the broken body and the shed blood is for redemption. And we receive that redemption through trusting in Christ and Christ alone. So as you are ready, you may come.
Hallelujah, what a Savior. To save us, Jesus had to die. When he was hanging on the cross, people mocked him, calling out, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Although intended as mockery, these words, in a sense, were true. Because if Jesus wanted to save us from our sins, he could not save himself. He had to be obedient all the way to the point of death. Jesus chose to sacrifice himself in order that others might be redeemed. This was his mission, and it took him to the cross. As Jesus' life was ebbing away, he knew he had accomplished his mission of atoning for the sins of the world. So he said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus was dead.